Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been three months since the Maui wildfires. We talk about federal aid for victims. A big deadline is looming. Tomorrow is the last day to apply for assistance. We also explore the timeline for recovery. FEMA shares what will help speed things along. The Maiden Maui Festival marked its 10th year this past weekend. Why small businesses still need the support to stay strong during this recovery phase. And we talk about the care economy, from child care to elder care to general health care, what the pandemic forced us to see. And on our Manu Minute, we feature an introduced species, a game bird from Africa with a distinctive cackle. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today marks three months since wildfires tore through Lahaina and Kula on Maui. Governor Josh Green has a news conference scheduled for noon today to provide updates on the recovery efforts. Tomorrow is a deadline for those impacted by the fires to apply for assistance from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. HPR's Russell Subiono spoke with FEMA Region 9 Administrator Bob Fenton this morning. He shared how much has been spent on assistance so far and what the timeline looks like for recovery. To date, FEMA's provided over $1.3 billion in assistance, and we've had over 6,318 households approved for other needs of assistance, which is part of our individual assistance program, and 3,543 households approved for housing assistance. So what that means is that if you're approved for housing assistance, you receive funding for minimal repair replacement, also rental assistance, and then the other needs assistance are assistance for personal items lost in the fire, could be uh, lodging expense reimbursement, could be transportation, medical expense, funeral expenses, you know, or other necessary items that were lost during the fire. What do you anticipate the amount that's going to be spent on the recovery? I think you mentioned you've already spent, did you say a billion dollars on recovery so far? Yeah, so far we've spent over $1.3 billion. And, and that's just FEMA. That's not other federal agencies. That's just FEMA funding. And to date, the majority of that has been in direct mission assignments to provide federal resources to help with life-saving, life-sustaining protection of public health. So most of it's been spent in getting ready to start the debris removal with temporary power missions early on to provide generators, the temporary school that is being constructed, also funding for temporary housing and starting to look at potentially having to build out houses also additional funding through the U.S. EPA to do the hazardous waste collection happening, and then funding to the U.S. Coast Guard to remove the second vessels in the ports. And so those are what FEMA has the ability to do is coordinate the whole federal response to this event. And when the state or local government, state or the county of Maui, asks us to help them, what we do is then we either provide a FEMA resource or task another federal agency to do that, give them the funding to do that. And so uh, a significant amount of money spent there. And then also in reimbursement of costs, 
expended by the county or state so far, and then obviously money for individual assistance to help individuals affected by the event. Do you think that there will be at least another billion spent on recovery as, as time goes on? Yeah, I think that there, not only from us, but other federal agencies, you know, good. For example, SBA has already provided $200 million in loans. HUD is typically an organization that will help really with the long-term rebuilding, especially when you talk about uh, building housing. I know that there is a number of uh, low-income housing units lost in the fire, and HUD's going to be really important to, you know, rebuilding housing from this event. So those kind of organizations such as HUD, SBA, you know, even organizations such as especially uh, EDA and other organizations that bring federal funds here. Earlier, Department of Energy provided $100 million with regard to the energy grid through a grant. So those kind of funds, I think, you know, that just in FEMA easily will probably spend, you know, over $2 billion. And then there will be other federal agencies that spend hundreds of millions of dollars more. You know, I think the key thing is, you know, we'll be here to the end to provide all the resources that we can. And you touched on the fact that FEMA will be here to the end. And we've heard various lengths of time regarding how long it will take for the recovery to happen in, in Lahaina. We've heard three to five to seven to 10 years. At this point in time, how long do you anticipate the recovery taking? Well, it really depends on, you know, the capacity here in Maui County. There's a lot of complications here, you know, versus the mainland, the fact that you're 2,500 miles away and most things are imported here. And uh, just the sheer number of houses destroyed and businesses destroyed in this event really requires a significant surge in resources that is going to be needed far and above what is normal. So I think all those complications will make recovery complex. When we think about recovery, it has to be a coalition uh, led effort. And it can't just be the federal government and FEMA and other federal agencies or state government or even county government. It really needs to be everyone collectively, including those impacted by the event, working with private sector businesses, philanthropy, nonprofits, working together in a coalition. And as those organizations work together, we can collectively speed up the recovery process. But I'll give you the example of just the removal, which is six months to a year. If everyone gets the right of entry in very quickly, then it speeds up and we're closer to the six-month period. But right now, while we have maybe 21 or 22 rights of entry for the 26 properties up in upcountry, we have less than 10% of the rights of entry for Lahaina. And so we really need to speed up collecting those rights of entry and people submitting those rights of entry and entrusting the federal government to remove the debris from their property in order to get to the reconstruction. You know, even once we move the debris, then we need to fix the infrastructure that's there, right? And the the infrastructure can't be fixed until there's a final vision of what the new Lahaina looks like. And that really depends on the community and the the county to come together and set that. So there's a lot of things that are dependent on, you know, the coalition, a whole community effort coming together to work together collectively to set that process. I think the good news is, you know, the mayor has been a great leader and bringing together the community. You know, they're starting town hall meetings every Wednesday. There's a group of advisors appointed to the mayor that are recognized leaders in the community. They're having community leadership groups come together. Those things are very important to get agreement because there's obviously multiple interests at stake when you look at business, community, 
uh, different community groups. And, and so that's going to be important in designing what the new Lahaina looks like. We from FEMA could fund that. You know, we could fund the infrastructure that was damaged. We could fund mitigation projects that prevent this. We could fund the individual assistance we're giving to homeowners. SBA can provide loans. HUD can provide grants to help in rebuilding and development of low-interest properties. But really what it takes is collective agreement to move forward. So it's going to take years. You know, to your question, you know, how many years is really dependent on everyone working together in a collective effort that really speeds that up. Just to give you some reference points, if we go to the Sonoma fire in California and look at a place like Coffee Park, which was a subdivision that had about 1,500 homes destroyed, it took them about three years before they rebuilt about 75% of those homes. And that's with all the enormous resources that exist in California, the number of laborers that exist, contractors, all those kind of things that could come and be there immediately to solve those problems. It's going to take a little bit more time here just because of the distance and the complexities that we spoke about. And, you know, really important is the individual that's been affected. We have, you know, almost 2,700 households still in hotels. We're starting to provide them rental properties right now and rental assistance. But, you know, to give you an example, we provide over 3,300 households rental assistance and less than 100 have taken that money and been able to rent something and then needed additional rental assistance, which we could give up to 18 months. But we really want to encourage population that's affected to start leveraging our programs. And what we're doing is a lot of outreach right now, communications to them to help them not only leverage our programs, but to identify where do individuals have gaps in our programs and how do we then wrap nonprofits and other philanthropy organizations around that to fill those gaps. That was FEMA Region 9 Administrator Bob Fenton talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the recovery efforts on Maui. We'll have more of that conversation right after a short break. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marks Cafe, we reprise a show we did about the 8th Hawaii Annual Code Challenge. We'll find out how the program transitions from one administration to the next and what we can expect in this annual state hackathon. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bike Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. Welcome back. Let's continue our conversation with FEMA Region 9 Administrator Bob Fenton. He spoke with HPR's Russell Subiano this morning about Maui's uh, residents' concerns over the lengthy process for applying for disaster recovery assistance. Tomorrow is the deadline for filing for uh, registering for assistance with FEMA. I have had the opportunity to talk to a handful of Maui residents impacted by the fire 
who have described the process of applying for assistance, whether it be with FEMA or any other agency, they describe it as being grinding. It's something that they have to work on or check on daily. They've expressed their frustration with the slow process and sometimes encountering FEMA employees who are curt and seemingly unsympathetic. Can you shed some light on why that may have been some of the experience and what people can do to help make the process smoother? Yeah. um, You know, let me first talk about, you know, who's here from FEMA. We have, you know, civil servants that come from all over the country, you know, a very diverse group of civil servants, many of them who worked in the military or been first responders or, you know, in other organizations, some new to their career and some that have been in their career for multiple decades and have a lot of experience. You know, these are people that are also, you know, away from their homes, but they're here because they have, you know, one thing in common is they really want to help those that have been affected by this fire. You know, they're they're going to be away from their families over the holidays because they want to serve and help those that have impact, been impacted by these fires. And, and I think that's, you know, overarching. That is a common theme among those in FEMA. Our core values are fairness, integrity, compassion, and respect. And I think all of those federal employees live those core values. I can't speak to, you know, every conversation that uh, each person's had and, and what their perception is. I know that, you know, people have been, you know, significantly affected. I know that people have lost loved ones, family members, and friends. And some, you know, lost their entire house, you know, and, and just, you know, probably a significant, you know, uh, portion of their life has been affected by this event. And, and our hearts, you know, and prayers go out to those individuals that are in that situation. We want to help them. We want to provide them all the resources that we can to assist them. I think typically government programs are designed to, you know, assist the masses, right, and to assist, you know, large groups. And so our systems are set up to do that. But what we try to do is we try to identify those that need additional support or how do we bring the process to them versus them going to the process. So what we've done is we put individuals from FEMA in the hotels to help provide personal attention to them and to maybe assist them. We've also had individuals from our team go out to the community and register people where they're at. And then we had at the beginning four disaster recovery centers open, I think still two open. The big one is in Lahaina. And what I would say is that there are an enormous amount of resources available to everyone on island. If you have any questions, go to that recovery center and sit down with one of our assistants there or go talk to the various nonprofits there or state and local programs and see how they can help you. Go spend some time there. My guess is that you will get through your questions and address your issues. Every time I go speak at a location, I always get, you know, maybe a question from one person of, you know, there's something wrong with my claim. I try to resolve it. I usually bring people with me that could do immediately case manage. And as soon as they're able to sit down with someone that's able to interact with them, they usually resolve it pretty quickly. I can tell you the big issues that I see, and maybe in some cases, persistent issues with our process that I see is one of the things is when you first register for FEMA assistance and you provide all your information, you know, there's an immediate decision as far as eligibility and assistance. And then for that other needs assistance that I was talking about, you know, the the personal item, a loss of car, medical expenses, funeral expenses, you know, those kind of things. It requires you to go to SBA first 
and complete a loan application. And a lot of people, I think, get confused by that. Unfortunately, that is the process by which someone becomes potentially eligible for that other needs assistance. So the system requires them to go at SBA and fill out an application for SBA. If you are turned down by SBA, then you can come back to FEMA and get other grants. If you go to SBA and you're eligible for a loan, but you don't want to take that loan, you don't have to take that loan, but you are required if you want to get the full suite of services from FEMA to fill out that loan application. And for some reason, a lot of people, you know, get concerned about a loan and don't want to fill it out. And it just limits you for potentially assistance you could receive from us. Two is there's a lot of people that have received insurance, which is a good thing. You know, we're always happy in FEMA where people are able to take care of themselves and a lot of people had insurance on this event. And so what they need to do is they need to go ahead and work with the insurance company. We want to know if people are having issues with their insurance company. We can work with a state insurance adjuster and we can work with, you know, other insurance organizations to provide information to help them make timely decisions. But one of the things is, is if you've received insurance, FEMA cannot duplicate assistance you've received. And I think that's, Maybe another part of this is there's a lot of people who are still going through the insurance process and unsure whether the insurance is going to help them or they're going to need additional assistance from FEMA. And so we're working with them right now to kind of understand that. But if you received insurance and you have alternate living expense, then you need to start using that funding in order to support yourself. If you need help and you can't locate, you know, rentals and your home was destroyed in the event and you're eligible for FEMA, then we could look at how can we help you? Can we help you identify a location, a rental property, or those kind of things? But our goal is to continue to focus on ensure that everyone gets into a stable, safe, secure housing as soon as possible. And we're trying to really move people from kind of the hotel situation, which is really temporary, into an apartment and longer-term housing solution so that they're able to stay there until they make long-term plans. I appreciate you taking the time to talk story with me this morning, Bob. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, again, why the application period ends tomorrow, there's always a possibility for extension. If someone didn't apply, you can always apply late and provide justification why we are going to be here till the end to help people. And if you're reached out to by us and we have a rental property for you, take advantage of that, move into it quickly as there's a limited supply. And, And obviously those that are able to get into us first are going to be able to move the quickest into the, the next step in a much longer-term stable housing solution. So appreciate you having me on and look forward to continue to be here to work with everyone and, and help everyone that needs help. And that was FEMA Region 9 Administrator Bob Fenton, who talked with HPR's Russell Subiano earlier this morning. Uh, We do have a development uh, we have been able to uh, verify with FEMA that they have now extended the deadline a month. Uh, December 9th is the new deadline to file for FEMA disaster re- recovery assistance. Uh, and uh, we just want to let folks know that they will have interpreters available at the disaster recovery centers. Uh, we will have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up in your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okawai, oahu, omolokai, 
ulana umau ukahu ulabe uhavai Today we're looking for the name of a woman who broke the glass ceiling to become Hawaii's first female lawyer. Born December 5th, 1863, into a missionary family, she didn't follow the usual path of becoming a teacher. Instead, she assisted in her father's legal practice. In 1886, with the full support of her family, she joined six other women studying law at the University of Michigan, and a year later was admitted to the Michigan Bar. In 1888, our lady lawyer returned home to Hawaii to continue her career. Undeterred by the fact that many states would not admit a woman to the practice of law, she petitioned the Chief Justice of the Hawaii Supreme Court for admittance to the bar. She wrote this in a letter to her former classmates. This was the first time the court had been asked to admit a woman, and there was some controversy about letting me in. Nevertheless, it wasn't long after that she joined her father's firm as a full partner. For today's Backward Quiz, can you tell us the name of the woman that we're talking about? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. For 10 years, Maui County has put on the Made in Hawaii Festival. This past weekend, thousands flocked to the Arts and Cultural Center to support local small businesses once again. HPR reporter Catherine Kluwett-Pactol was there in the crowd and joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so hot weather for the for the gathering? Sorry, what was that? You cut out a little bit there. Oh, sorry. The weather was hot this weekend for the event. It was. It was a really warm day. Um, so the event is held Friday and Saturday. It's a two-day annual event for the Made in Maui County Festival, and it's held every year in Kahului at the Maui Arts and Cultural Center. It's held outdoors, uh, so the weather plays a big part in it. Um, and as you said, it was the 10th annual event this year. Of course, during uh, a couple of years during COVID, it was held virtually. And six vendors were actually recognized this year who have participated all 10 years. So there were six out of nearly 150 vendors this year uh, who have made it the long haul. And annually, it, it attracts more than 10,000 attendees. I didn't get the final numbers on this year's attendance, but um, it's a really big, important event for a lot of small businesses in Maui County. It helps them connect with wholesale buyers, and it really strengthens their markets. It helps, you know, of course, uh, meet face-to-face with buyers and really make those connections that make doing business in um, in our community so special. So both uh, organizers and vendors this year said holding 
the event, even though so many events were canceled in the wake of the August wildfires, was more important than ever. Here's Pamela Tumpop, who is president of the Maui Chamber of Commerce, talking about what it means for the community after the fires. Every year we understand how important it is for our local manufacturers. It really helps them be seen, get community feedback, and we always bring in wholesale buyers and distributors to meet with them. But it was even more important this year. So many of our vendors, some were in Lahaina and were really directly impacted by the fires. Others uh, sold their products through stores in that region. So it's sort of been a landslide across our community and the retail community for locally made products. This show is important each and every year. It's the way they sell products over the holidays and create new linkages and, and have wholesale buyers for next year. So it's even more important this year for those who lost everything. It's a way to connect with buyers. It's a way to promote online sales. It's a way for them to continue to meet the public who adores them and comes out year after year, who wants to shop local and support them. And of course, the community now more than ever is here because they know the hardships they faced and they're coming out in droves. And it shows our resilience. It shows the heart of our people because many of those directly impacted, some of the vendors here lost their inventory. And they called us and said, please keep this event on. We're working hard, we're rebuilding our inventory. Please continue to have the show. And of course we said that we would. So it means a lot this year. Yeah, I mean, nothing beats the face-to-face, you know, and, and after coming through a disaster, it's just nice, you know, to have that human touch. Absolutely. So many vendors I talked to said that that was a really meaningful part of this year was just coming together, being able to share their products, of course, but just celebrate this happening and, you know, business continuing. Um, It's a really positive atmosphere. And, you know, there's music, there's um, live uh, sort of fashion shows for some of the clothing designers that are there. It's, It's a really positive event. One thing that debuted this year was the Malama Maui pin. And that pin is a representation that just came out a couple days before this event. So I think this event was one of the first places where people were wearing it. But Kathy Collins, who was the event MC, explained it at the event stage. This is a Malama Maui pin. It was designed by a local wahine who was very concerned about uh, all of the stuff that's going on and sensitive to uh, how many of our folks that have been affected by the fires, both in Lahaina and upcountry, how they may be feeling. So the little pin, it's just got that pink hibiscus and it says, Malama Maui, mahalo for not asking. This is something that not a lot of people have thought about, but this Wahine saw the need. She chooses to remain anonymous, but she went ahead and designed this pin. This is designed for folks who are fire survivors or those who are sensitive to their needs. It's basically a request for privacy. It's been three months since the fires, and many folks are still in a state of shock, of grief, morning and if they're wearing this pin it's a message that I'm just not ready to talk about it yet. Wow what a good idea. Yeah so it's a small little pin but it sounds like it'll be making an appearance more in the community especially as visitors return 
to Maui, just as a reminder to be, again, sensitive and be a good listener if people do want to talk about it, but also not to ask if they don't bring it up. Yeah, well, just want to be sensitive uh, during this really tough time. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HPR's Catherine Kluwit-Pactel talking to us about the Made in Maui Festival held this past weekend. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Low salaries, that was a factor in the declining staff at the Honolulu Prosecutor's Office. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Ben Engrone on the line today. Good morning. How are you? I am good, but boy, your story is so interesting. And I, and I know you folks are updating uh, the uh, feature that you have on your website about uh, state salaries of government workers. Yes, yes. This is something we started doing about 10 years ago, I think. Uh, and so every two years with the new budgets that go into effect, we uh, we always request the salary data from, I think it's 19 different statewide entities. And uh, so this first story with this update, we're focusing specifically on citywide salaries and specifically on the prosecutor's office. And so, yeah, your article talks about how uh, Steve Alm lost some of his deputies to other offices that were offering better pay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So something that uh, I really like about the salary database is obviously you can see the number, like the amount of money that people make, but you can also see how many employees are in are working for specific departments, how many of them are on the payroll. And so this is something I noticed where I was looking at trends over time of different departments and different job titles. And so that's when I noticed deputy prosecutors, deputy, yeah, prosecuting attorneys had gone down in number. And when I asked the office about it, uh, prosecutor Steve Alm was telling me that yes, this is something that they talk about as a problem. And yes, the uh, the problem seems to come from uh, their deputy prosecutors for Honolulu are going not just to other counties to be deputy prosecutors there because they pay more money, but also to the state attorney general's office, which a couple of years ago, the state legislature gave them an extra over $3 million to raise their salaries. So now Honolulu has to raise their salaries to remain competitive in that marketplace. Otherwise, they would keep losing the deputy prosecuting attorneys. That's what Steve Alm was telling me. Yeah, so he lost, what, 14 deputies? Something like that. I think the uh, the percentage was something like 18%. I think it went from, let me pull up the story right in front of me. I think it was something like from 95, uh, from 96 down to 79 between fiscal year 2022 and fiscal year 2024. So, yeah, when you do the math, that's about an 18% decrease in the number of prosecuting attorneys, which obviously spreads the workload out. The workload does not go down just because there are fewer employees. It just gets spread out a little more. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a hit because, you know, crime doesn't uh, <laughs> go away. Crime doesn't sleep. No, it does not. <laughs> and, and and you uh, also <laughs> looked at uh, some of the other um, positions uh, in, in the uh, city government uh, that are, are pretty hefty. 
Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And so one example that I included at the bottom was uh, the deputy medical examiner. So the medical examiner's office, they'll do things like autopsies when it comes to, uh, you know, deaths of suspicious circumstance. They work closely with the police department, basically, and they do autopsies and stuff. And the deputy medical examiner, that role has been vacant for three years now because uh, even though it has a very high salary, they boosted it actually 30% this year up to, I think it was a little from $273,000 up to about $354,000. They're not able to attract people because, uh, or they're having trouble too, because uh, if you have that sort of level of expertise, you know, you can be making salaries like that all around the nation in areas maybe with lower costs of living. So. So, you know, if you want to submit your cover letter and make $354,000, uh, deputy medical examiner is open, that slot right now. So, well, you, yeah. You, you have a, a graph in your story that uh, really lists all the people that make more money than uh, uh, Mayor Rick Mangiardi, and there's a lot of them. Yeah, there is a lot of them. It's funny, isn't it? And some of these have changed over time, too. Like the director of, rap of rapid transportation uh, for the rail project, uh, that used to be like in the $400,000 range. And that's not the case anymore. But yeah, it's always interesting. Even Rick Blangiardi, the mayor, makes more than the governor. So, you know, salaries uh, for each specific role and department, they come up in different ways. And so it's interesting to see the effects of how that plays out because it it's a little unintuitive sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see uh, uh, what other stories that you folks come out with. But thanks so much, Ben. Yeah, thanks so much, Catherine. Have a good one. All righty. We have been talking to uh, Civil Beats' uh, Ben Engerone for today's Reality Check. Uh, you can hit, read his stories on the salary issues at civilbeat.org. I'm DJ Mermaid, host of Hawaii Kula Ivi on HPR. Join me for HPR's in-person sound salon event called 808 Heartache. We've all felt it. Pain, sorrow, anger, even vengeance. We'll explore how these feelings are expressed in some of my favorite Hawaiian music. The event is this Thursday night at 7. Admission is $10. Seating is limited. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. Jen Poe cares passionately about the care economy. She's a key force in the coalition caring across generations. A shaker and mover in the labor world, Poe is the head of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and a 2014 recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. She's in town to give a talk tomorrow at the University of Hawaii as part of the Better Tomorrow series. She is no stranger to Hawaii and helped to uh, help pass work to help pass the first paid family leave act. She reflected on how far we've come in acknowledging healthcare workers, 
family caregivers, and the future of work. And we can thank the pandemic for that. There has been transformational progress that has been made, in, especially in terms of public awareness. The last time I came was before the pandemic. And, you know, there was kind of a quiet, simmering care crisis where everyone knew that we were, you know, our, gro- our aging population is growing in this country. Four million babies born, four million people turning 65 every year, and really no infrastructure in place. So whether it's, you know, single moms or family caregivers caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's or like everybody was stressed and kind of simmering in this crisis. But then the pandemic happened. And I think what happened is that we all kind of awakened when the whole bottom dropped, right? When the bottom fell out from underneath us, it really brought the care crisis to everybody's doorstep in a whole new way. And people realized that we can be doing the very best we can, and it's still not enough. That we actually need social programs, systems, policies to support us to take care of the people that we love. And we just don't have that in this country, right? We don't have universal childcare. We don't even have paid family and medical leave. We're one of few countries in the entire world that has no paid family and medical leave mandate. So like one in four moms go back to work two weeks after giving birth in America. That's really significant that that's the case. We don't have any long-term care program in this country. A lot of people think that Medicare covers long-term care. It doesn't, right? So we were all kind of grappling with this, and then the pandemic kind of unlocked this awareness that it's not a crisis of personal failures. It's not just that I have the wrong job, or I didn't save enough to take care of my parents, or I didn't buy the long-term care insurance. It's that we as a society have not invested in the kind of infrastructure we need to support us to take care of the people that we love. And so in the pandemic, all of a sudden there was this kind of great awakening and all of our champions started to respond. And so we had Congress moving legislation. We had a president and vice president in the White House who, for the very first time, put care at the forefront of the economic agenda in this country. It's always been a policy that nobody's against, right? Nobody's going to be against child care. But when it comes to the country's top economic priorities, this is an issue that usually falls in the women's agenda or maybe the aging agenda, never the core of the economic agenda until now. Right now, it is not just the care economy, child care, paid leave, aging and disability care, and good jobs for care workers. These four pillars are front and center in our national economic agenda. And all over the country, states are moving policies forward. Washington State just launched the first long-term care benefit in the country. New Mexico passed a ballot initiative to permanently finance childcare in the state. And I'm hoping that Hawaii will be the next state to launch a paid family and medical leave program. This is the kind of groundswell that is building the momentum to generational change at the federal level. 
And it's all coming together right now. I mean, I've never seen the kind of momentum, the kind of coalition, the kind of energy around these issues in the 25 years that I've been doing this work. The time is now. This is like a generational moment for change. Yeah, so Carpe Diem, seize the day. Right? Yes. Well, I, you know, I remember when I came here in the 80s, Mayor Frank Fossey was talking about, you know, oh, we've got to prepare for the silver tsunami. And we haven't done much to do that, even though there was a vision like, oh, we're going to be in trouble because we've got a, an aging population. And, you know, like you said, the pandemic just put it up there in all its, you know, stark nakedness. So, yeah, we, whether you're talking child care, elder care, just general health care, we have far to go, but we're at a, at a pivotal time here. It's absolutely pivotal. The median income for a home care worker in the U.S. is $23,000 per year. I don't know a single place in the country where you can raise a family on $23,000 a year, take care of the people that you love. And so with that kind of poverty wage, what ends up happening is just high rates of turnover. So we cannot retain or recruit the kind of workforce we need to take care of our older loved ones or our disabled loved ones. And so the system is basically has no strong foundation. A strong workforce would be the foundation of our system. You come from a family of healthcare workers, mm-hmm. and you're a mom. Mm-hmm. And so how was that personal experience helping to push you into what you do today? Well, I think the idea that care is a fundamental building block to a healthy family, a healthy community, a healthy economy, that was kind of ingrained. It was kind of in the water growing up. And my grandmother was a nurse, and she was also just a family caregiver for so many people in my own family, but even in our extended community. I, Right now, I think I have 100 aunties because <laughs> of all the people that she cared for. And, um, and then my mother, similarly, was not just a physician who cared for Uh, people with cancer, but my primary caregiver, my sister, and then when my grandmother and my grandfather needed care, also a family caregiver for them. And I think it's so interesting because she, I remember my grandmother passed away in May of 2020. And at that point, my mother had retired and became her full-time family caregiver. And she was supported by hospice nurses and CNAs who would come and visit my grandmother at home. And it was during the pandemic. So everything was very tenuous. Everyone was nervous. And these hospice nurses would just show up with so much grace and care and presence and skill. And even my mother, who was a physician for so many years, did not have the kind of skills that hospice nurses bring in terms of ensuring comfort, ensuring dignity, quality of life in those moments of frailty, in those moments of the final days. And so just seeing the team come together of my mom, the hospice nurse, Georgia, my sister, my niece, me, all of us come together. It reminded me of how when we really support and value these caregiving relationships, we can turn life's hardest moments into the biggest opportunities for connection, for growth, And that's what I'm hoping investing in care as a society does for us, right? It just, 
it can make us better if we focus on the parts of it that are really about showing up for the people that we love and taking away the friction and the pain of how costly it is, how hard it is to manage, how hard it is to survive um, with all of the pressures of work and care. And, and those are all things that we can address through policy. How do you also address the cultural aspect? Because I know I felt when I was dealing with my father, you're conflicted because in some cultures, you know, you just take care of your own. And so you struggle with things like that. You do. And I think there's been this kind of false choice that's been created for us where it's on the one hand seen as kind of a personal responsibility, right? That you are supposed to take care of your own on your own, um, as opposed to getting support from other caregivers, from a care workforce, from these programs that allow us to afford support and respite. And that's actually a false choice. In some ways, having access to home care workers, right, like we did in my family, or, you know, respite care, or uh, assisted living, or, you know, adult daycare centers, like, these are resources that actually support us to show up for our loved ones. It's not an either or, we, we need both. I mean, no one will ever replace the role that we have as caregivers for the people that we love. What we can do when we build a system around it is actually support us to show up even better the way that we are meant to. You know, recently we got a chance to talk to someone who won the Carther Foundation grant, and you uh, were also one of the genius uh, <laughs> recipients as well. And that was like almost like 10 years ago. Yeah. So how did that award help you in advancing this movement that means so much to you? You know, the the MacArthur Fellowship is this almost like a stamp of approval, right? And people call it the genius grant. But what it did for us, for me, was give me this ability to talk about the genius of care, this role in our society that is so undervalued, so invisible. I mean, care workers are always referred to as unskilled but if you know anyone, or if you yourself have even been a caregiver, you know that there's so much skill <laughs> in that work. And skill doesn't even begin to cover it. The tenacity, the, the role is so expansive and important. And, and what I've been able to do with this, the doors that the fellowship has opened is really highlight that, both the genius of the care workforce and how undervalued this work is, and then the genius of the 53 million family caregivers who every day go to enormous extents to, to take care of the people that they love on top of working. And so there's still much work to be done, but boy, we are at a fork in the road. We really are, we really are. Are we going to be a society that says, you're on your own? Or are we going to be a society that says, actually, we believe that care is fundamental to our future and our well-being as a society, and we're going to support it? And that's the fork in the road. All right. Well, Ai Po, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. That was Ai Po, who will be featured at tomorrow's Better Tomorrow speaker series at the University of Hawaii at 6.30 p.m. She will address shifting from the crisis economy to the care economy. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website later today.
HBR enriches its reporting with important historical context. The anniversary of the death of Captain Cook may not be replacing Valentine's Day celebrations in Hawaii anytime soon, but there is a growing awareness of this history and what it means to the Native Hawaiian people. The story goes on February 14, 1779. Word is being shouted from the ocean that this chief has been shot and killed. And in that one tense moment, the chiefs are not having it. That's when Cook is killed. There's a growing sense that we can no longer tolerate the big and small incursions upon our land and our people. Hawaiian historian Kihau Abad says this was a symbolic moment for Native Hawaiians. Cook's arrival brought with it infectious diseases that devastated the Native Hawaiian population. Support local news coverage. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. It's getting close to Thanksgiving, and so in this week's Manu Minute, we turn our attention to a game bird. We hear the song of a feathered fowl called Urkel's Franklin. Some may say the song is really more of a cackle. What do you think? Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo biology professor Patrick Hart. Urkel's Franklins are plump, partridge-like birds with a distinctive chestnut-colored cap on their head and chestnut-streaked feathers on their chest and back. They're about 16 inches long and weigh a little more than 2 pounds. Originally from the Ethiopia region of Africa, Hawaii is the only other place in the world they're found in the wild, as they were introduced as a game bird here in the 1950s to 60s. They can be seen on Oahu, Kauai, and the Big Island, where they've become very common, especially in higher elevation grasslands and shrublands. If you hear a loud, laughing cackle, but there's no people around, there's a good chance there's an Urkel's Franklin nearby. <laughs> Urkel's Franklins are similar to chickens in that they spend most of their time on the ground and also prefer to run rather than fly. Also like chickens, the females lay a large clutch of eggs in a nest on the ground. And when the young hatch, they're already covered with feathers and are ready to forage on their own. A recent study from Oahu showed that they love to consume a variety of fruits from both native and non-native plant species and are likely spreading a variety of invasive plants such as vivee, blackberry, and clydemia into our native forests. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. And now it's time for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. We asked you about a trailblazing individual who made history becoming Hawaii's first woman lawyer over a century ago. 
Born in 1863, our mystery woman grew up in the small town of Hilo and followed in her father's footsteps, pursuing a career in law. In 1886, she joined six other women studying law at the University of Michigan. And in 1888, she returned to Hawaii and successfully petitioned to enter the Hawaii Bar. Many states in America did not recognize women lawyers at this time, but gender wasn't an issue when she was made a full partner in her father's law firm. Based on Hawaii Island, she often rode long distances on horseback to attend court or to meet clients. She also frequently argued cases in the Hawaiian language. Sadly, after a long illness, Almeida Eliza Hitchcock died at her parents' Hilo home in 1895. She was just 32. The Hawaiian Gazette wrote of the island's first woman lawyer, saying hers was a life full of bright promises. And our winner today was Gerald from Wahewa. But that's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Okay, that's it for us today. We're out of time, but up tomorrow... We check in on the auditions for the new Cirque du Soleil show in Waikiki. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation on Spotify or Apple or wherever you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.